the international order in the Balkans is the most fluid in Europe, as a glance at the map makes clear. For centuries, the region was subsumed within the Ottoman and Hungarian empires, except for a pocket of mountainous territory, Montenegro, which resisted conquest by the Turks. By the 1830s, two small independent states had appeared, Greece and Serbia. And in the 1870s, this number grew as Bulgaria and Romania gained independence from the declining Ottoman Empire and Austria annexed Bosnia. In the 1910s, Ottoman power fully collapsed, producing an independent Albania, while Serbia, Montenegro, Bulgaria and Greece all expanded their territory. After World War I, Transylvania was attached to Romania and the Western Balkans was incorporated into a single multi-ethnic state, the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes, later Yugoslavia. This lasted until 1941 when Yugoslavia collapsed and Croatia, Albania and Bulgaria incorporated parts of it into expanded nation states. Then, in 1945, Yugoslavia was reintegrated by the communists, which is how matters remained until 1991. Now, I promise the slides are going to slow down a little bit from now on. Let me just make an adjustment here. These changes are the consequence of an interplay between two sets of actors. The first is the peoples of the Balkans who are trying to establish nation states of the kind which prevail in the rest of Europe. That is a self-governing entity in which most members of a national community live. And the impulse for this is the history of persecution in the region uh, and the weak tradition of constitutional liberalism, which leaves minorities at risk of domination by majorities. Uh, and accordingly, the cardinal rule of Balkan politics is never be a minority in someone else's state, uh, and instead establish a state for oneself which can guarantee security, rights, uh, and economic opportunity. And the second set of actors uh, is the great powers which surround the Balkans and are continually drawn to the region uh, for reasons of security. As a natural geographical buffer, the great powers have an interest in the internal stability of the Balkans and in keeping their rivals out, something which requires periodic intervention. However, this usually comes at the price of entanglement in Balkan politics, manipulation by the locals into advancing their goals and retaliation by other great powers. So as a consequence, outsiders tend not to linger, but instead to intervene briefly, reorder the region, and then get out. 
the nature of this reordering is invariably a compromise between, on the one hand, the demands of the local actors and, on the other, the interests of the great powers. In the 1870s, for example, outsiders accepted the creation of nation-states in the region, but with their power strictly limited. The short-lived Greater Bulgaria was downsized for fear that it would become a platform for <coughs> Russian power in the region. Similarly, after World War I, Serbs, Croats and Slovenes were granted their goal of an independent state, but at the price of forced cohabitation with each other to create a strong state that could resist potential revanchism by Austria and Hungary. And this continued during the Cold War when the United States and the Soviet Union maintained Yugoslavia as a strategic buffer separating NATO and the Warsaw Pact. As a consequence, the quest for nation-statehood continues with each new configuration of the region meeting some people's needs while frustrating the ambitions of others. The one group which has virtually established a nation-state is the Greeks, following a massive population exchange with the new state of Turkey in 1923. The Romanians are close, notwithstanding two million Romanians incorporated into the Soviet republics of Moldova and Ukraine in 1940. And so too are the Bulgarians, if we disregard the Slavs of North Macedonia, who once identified as Bulgarian. By contrast, the goal of nation-statehood was frustrated for those nations which were incorporated into Yugoslavia after the First World War. Instead, the Slovenes, Croats, and Albanians and others were forced to trade minority status uh, in their former empires for minority status in a state dominated by the Serbs. And through the 1920s and 30s, each of these agitated for greater political rights and autonomy finally achieving their goal in the 1940s when they successfully leveraged the external support of Germany and Italy leading to Yugoslavia's collapse. This was to prove, however, a false start because following the war, the Allied powers reconstituted the multi-ethnic state of Yugoslavia, once again repressing the desires of the local people to establish nation-states. As a concession, the communists transformed the old kingdom into a federation of national republics that allowed Albanians, Croats, Slovenes, Macedonians, and Montenegrins some degree of self-governance. But this autonomy was limited in two ways. Firstly, from above, by a strong and authoritarian central government. And the various nations also had their autonomy constrained from below by the need to share power within their own republic with large national minorities. And while the Serbs could take some satisfaction from the fact of their notional unification 
within the framework of the Yugoslav Federation, their ability to pursue a form of national politics was limited by their division between five federal republics and two autonomous provinces, Vojvodina and Kosovo. These constraints were eventually to break Yugoslavia apart as the country descended into economic turmoil in the 1980s. When its constituent nations failed to agree how to reform the ailing socialist system, the Serbs decided to break the logjam by imposing themselves on the collective institutions, turning an economic crisis into a constitutional crisis which panicked the smaller groups. And this precipitated the last reordering in the Balkans in the 1990s and the 2000s in which Yugoslavia disintegrated in accordance with the federal republican boundaries. Slovenia and Croatia were the first to break, the latter taking with it a large Serb minority living along its frontier with Bosnia and Herzegovina and Serbia. And this was followed by Bosnia itself, a multi-ethnic state containing large numbers of Serbs and Croats, and then by Macedonia with its large Albanian minority. For a while, Montenegro remained in a union with Serbia, but last decade it too broke away, taking with it a large Serb minority, a small Albanian minority, and a small population of Muslim Slavs. And at the end of this process, the last man standing was Serbia, which gained independence from Yugoslavia by default with its panoply of minorities, uh, including Albanians, Bosniaks, and Croats. As before, this last reordering was a compromise between the demands of the local actors and the interests of the outside powers. The local actors tried to establish nation states on the territory on which they predominated. For the Serbs, this meant annexing the Serb-dominated parts of Croatia and Bosnia and attaching these to Serbia. For the Croats, this meant annexing the Croat-dominated parts of Bosnia while without conceding any of their own territory to Serbia. And for the Albanians, who lacked a republic in the old Yugoslavia, the task was to detach their territory on which they lived from Serbia and Macedonia. Left to their own devices, the various groups would probably have formed relatively homogenous nation states on the territory of the old Yugoslavia, mainly at the expense of Bosnia and Macedonia, which would have lost the territory on which their minority populations predominated. However, once again, outsiders, this time the United States and its European allies, blocked the ambitions of the locals and imposed a compromise solution which took as much account of their own interests as those of the local people. The result was an agreement that Yugoslavia could collapse and outsiders would recognize the independence of its emerging parts, but that these would be multi-ethnic states based on the former Yugoslav republics 
rather than new nation states. And there were several factors that guided the West's thinking. For one thing, it was bound by international law, which viewed the Yugoslav Federation as a voluntary association of independent states which had delegated their sovereignty to the centre and were now reclaiming it, which was a perfectly legal act. But at the same time, international law prohibited any change in the borders of these theoretically independent states without the consent of all the relevant governments, something that was clearly lacking. The West was also concerned about preventing violence and suffering, of course, in a part of the world where the mismatch of people and boundaries meant nation states could only arise from processes of war and ethnic cleansing. And in the background to this, many European governments were instinctively averse to nationalism, which they saw as the source of the continent's instability in the 20th century and the antithesis of the newly established European Union, which was built on the idea of cooperation between nations. This new settlement created both winners and losers. The Slovenes got everything they wanted, doubling the number of Balkan peoples to have established a consolidated nation state. The Croats also gained a state of their own, albeit with around half a million Croats left outside in neighboring Bosnia and a small Serb minority left within. The Bosniaks and Croats, uh, uh, sorry, Bosniaks and Macedonians also gained their own states, albeit with large numbers of discontented minorities. By contrast, the Serbs were the big losers as the earlier division of the nation uh, between, the five, between the various Yugoslav republics belatedly left them divided between five new independent states, Bosnia, Croatia, Macedonia, Montenegro, and Serbia itself. Their one consolation in all of this was the West's agreement that the Serbs of Bosnia could maintain a self-governing entity, Republika Srpska, on most of the territory that they controlled during the war. Meanwhile, the Albanians made some progress in detaching themselves from their Slavic neighbours, but still remained divided between four new states, Macedonia, Montenegro, Serbia, and Albania proper, and a long way from achieving their goal of national unification. To quell the resulting nationalist frustration and allow the West to disengage from the region, the Europeans extended the Balkans the opportunity to join the EU. The rationale for this was that by preparing the region for membership, the EU could actually change the very nature of the region in the way Iberia and Central Europe have been changed, transforming poor, authoritarian, and non-consensual states into the kind of prosperous, democratic, and law-bound polities 
where minorities would be permanently content to live. And to this end, the EU offered the Balkans an implicit contract known as conditionality. In essence, accept the Western imposed settlement, knuckle down to reform, and in return, get the various benefits of EU membership, including the chance for divided nations to unite inside a borderless Europe. In effect, this was the Yugoslav solution recast for the political circumstances of the 21st century. And if that sounds idealistic, given Yugoslavia's twice collapse, then this idealism was buttressed by hard power. The United States pushed for the integration of the region into NATO. Coercive international missions forcibly rebuilt war-torn states. Foreign diplomats clamped down on any loose talk about changing borders, and NATO troops on the ground deterred any attempt to revise the post-Yugoslav settlement by means of violence. For those who've been paying attention, you may have noticed there's one place I haven't yet talked about. And this is the exception to the West's approach in the Balkans, uh, that only former Yugoslav republics could form independent states. And the exception in this was Kosovo. As an autonomous province of Serbia in the old Yugoslavia, rather than a fully-fledged federal republic, Serbia didn't have the right to secede without Belgrade's consent, which was absolutely denied. And for years, the West opposed Pristina's demand for independence. What ultimately persuaded the West to break its own rule on the integrity of borders was the outbreak of conflict in the late 1990s, as Albanians took up arms to fight for Kosovo's independence, and Serbia deployed its army to suppress their efforts. By 1998, the situation looked to the Western eye like that of Croatia and Bosnia in 1992, with the Serbian army violently imposing itself on a smaller neighboring population. The difference this time was that Westerners and the United States and the United Kingdom in particular were determined to prevent any repeat of the atrocities that followed in Croatia and Bosnia. And the result was a prolonged NATO bombing raid on Serbia, at the end of which Belgrade reluctantly agreed to surrender control of Kosovo and withdraw its security forces. And in its place, the United States and its allies established a UN mission to administer the territory, uh, supported by thousands of NATO troops, effectively transforming Kosovo into an international protectorate. However, this couldn't be a permanent arrangement. For one thing, the West had assumed responsibility for Kosovo only by default and was not interested in running the place indefinitely at enormous effort and expense, even less so after 9-11 when the West's attention shifted to the Middle East. 
Equally as importantly, Kosovo's Albanians, who were initially grateful to the West for liberation from Serbia, grew increasingly hostile to rule by yet another self-interested foreign power. And in 2004, following mass riots by the Albanians, which left 19 people dead, the United States and others took the inevitable step of preparing Kosovo for self-government. The question at this point was what form this self-government would take. One option was to award Kosovo independence, which would certainly satisfy the Albanians' demands, but would also enrage the Serbs and contravene international law, which required Serbia's consent for Kosovo's secession. The other option was to restore Kosovo's autonomy within Serbia, which would certainly satisfy the Serbs, but risk a resumption of the war of independence by the Albanians. Now, the one compromise between these positions, which some in Belgrade advocated, was to partition Kosovo along the river Ibar, separating a small Serb-dominated enclave in the north which Serbia would retain from the Albanian-dominated south, which Serbia would recognise as independent. And a small enclave of Albanians living in a region of Serbia known as the Preshevo Valley, adjacent to Kosovo, implicitly endorsed this idea by demanding to be a part of the newly independent state. However, this idea was vetoed at an early stage by the United States and most other Western governments on the basis that it constituted a change in the Yugoslav era borders and would set a dangerous precedent for the fragile states of Bosnia and Macedonia, the internal stability of which was based on the idea that borders in the region cannot change. As in other parts of the Balkans, the idea of creating a mono-ethnic state in Kosovo was also contrary to the spirit of the times, that openness and tolerance were virtues to be promoted over an exclusive form of territorial nationalism. Whatever happened to Kosovo had to happen to the whole of the province. This thinking certainly had a compelling logic, which only a few in the West questioned at the time. But the effect was to rule out any chance of a compromise over Kosovo's final status, leaving just two binary choices, autonomy within Serbia or independence. In the event, Kosovo's Albanians forced the issue by continuing to agitate for independence, as they had done for decades, with the difference now that their agitation was directed not against Serbia, but the international administrators who were running the country. And through the middle of the last decade, their campaign turned increasingly violent as crowds of frustrated Albanians rioted in Pristina and attacked UN buildings and vehicles, while in the background, wartime paramilitary organizations threatened to regroup. 
As tensions escalated, the West's position became increasingly untenable, and in February 2008, the United States and others therefore capitulated to Albanian pressure and formally recognized Kosovo's independence on the legally tenuous grounds that Serbian atrocities against the Albanian population the previous decade and the subsequent period of international supervision meant Kosovo could be severed from Serbia without Belgrade's consent. To avoid setting a precedent, however, for other parts of the region, such as Bosnia's Republika Srpska, the West also argued that Kosovo's provincial state status in the former Yugoslavia was akin to that of a federal republic, and its independence was therefore consistent with the mode of disintegration which was already established in the former Yugoslavia. And, crucially, the United States and others maintained their veto on any partition of Kosovo itself and instead recognised the independence of the province within its Yugoslav-era borders. The consequence of that was that the new Kosovan state included not only the Albanian-dominated south but also the Serb-dominated enclave in the north, despite strong resistance from the people living there who refused to accept Pristina's authority and ensured that the enclave remained functionally separate from the rest of the country. Predictably, Kosovo's independence was opposed in Serbia, which refused to validate the West's decision. And by extension, around half the countries of the world also refused to recognize Kosovo on the basis that this first required Serbia's consent, including two permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, China and Russia. <coughs> and the consequence of this is that Kosovo's transition to independence was left incomplete. Politically, the territory was independent, albeit with an enclave in the north which remained functionally integrated with Serbia. But its lack of recognition meant Kosovo was unable to join the international community via membership of the United Nations, European Union, NATO and other international organisations. And crucially, Serbia was also left smarting with anger at what it saw as Kosovo's illegal confiscation by the West without any form of territorial compensation and dependent on friendly powers like Russia for help in overcoming this perceived injustice. None of this was ideal for the United States, which had hoped to resolve Kosovo's status. But with the Albanians basically satisfied and Washington's obligations in the province fulfilled, the United States withdrew from, the, from uh, Balkan politics last decade and turned its attention to more important matters. And from here on in, uh, the Americans' role in the Balkans was limited mainly to an external security guarantee based on its integration with NATO and the implicit threat of force against anyone challenging the international veto on changes 
in the nature of borders in the region. And in its place, the Europeans assumed the Americans' day-to-day -day supervisory role and pushed their solution to the problem of unfulfilled nation-statehood by promoting the integration of the region into the EU. To solve the particular problem of Kosovo's disputed status, the Europeans made recognition uh, a de facto condition for Serbia's eventual membership of the EU, leading most commentators to believe that Belgrade would eventually accept the political reality of Kosovo's independence. However, and there's always a however, two developments were to force a rethink of Washington's retreat from the Balkans. The first was the European Union's descent into crisis, beginning with the financial shock of 2008, which then escalated into the Eurozone crisis, and finally a full-blown political crisis, forcing the European Union to pause its plans for enlargement and focus instead on simply holding itself together. Uh, and in doing so, the EU effectively surrendered its only real lever of control in the region, namely the promise of EU membership in return for accepting the Western settlement in the region. And the second was a deterioration in relations between the United States and Russia, which became increasingly nervous and angry about NATO's encroachment into its traditional security buffer in Eastern Europe. And this deterioration reached its breaking point with the American-backed uprising in Ukraine in 2013, which propelled to power a pro-Western government that openly called for Ukraine's membership of NATO. But Russia's response to this was decisive. In Ukraine, it annexed Crimea and fomented war in the Donbass with the aim of destabilizing the new government. And elsewhere in Eastern Europe, Russia actively tried to block the integration of those states which were not yet members of NATO, including Bosnia, Serbia, Montenegro, and Macedonia. As a relatively weak state, at least compared with the United States, Russia's leverage in the Balkans was limited, but it found an entry point into the region's politics by championing each of its target group's core grievance, such as the Serbs' hostility to entrapment in Bosnia in return for a commitment not to join NATO. And in the va vacuum left by the United States and the European Union, Russia faced little resistance, uh, at least at first. Predictably, however, <coughs> Washington viewed Russia's actions as a challenge to its settlement in the Balkans and a potential threat to regional stability. And as part of a broader fight back in Eastern Europe, the United States therefore made a return to the Balkans with the aim of pushing Russia out of the region. The first clash came in Macedonia in 2015, where the then government became embroiled 
in a massive corruption scandal, fell out with the West and turned to Russia for support, precipitating a two-year diplomatic battle at the end of which the United States succeeded in ousting the government and replacing it with a pliant administration that prioritized integration with NATO, even at the price of changing the country's name to North Macedonia. And this was followed by a contest in Montenegro, Russia's oldest ally, which the Americans pressurized into switching sides and joining NATO and succeeded, but only after a uh, Russian-backed attempt to assassinate the pro-NATO Prime Minister failed at the last minute. With North Macedonia and Montenegro secured and following a transition from the Obama to the Trump administrations in Washington, the United States then turned to the question of Serbia where Russia was firmly entrenched. To neutralize Moscow's influence, the United <coughs> States concluded it had to address the issue which provided Russia with its entry point into Belgrade politics, namely Serbia's anger over the loss of Kosovo. <coughs> but since returning Kosovo to Serbian control was completely unrealistic, that meant finding terms on which Serbia was prepared to recognize Kosovo and then persuading the Albanians to accept them. Now, the result of this was a set of clandestine negotiations between the presidents of Kosovo and Serbia held in the first half of last year. Unsurprisingly, when asked the question, Serbia's president revived the idea of Kosovo's partition, the compromise the United States had rejected a decade earlier, motivated primarily by a desire to end the Kosovo dispute and remove the main impediment to Serbia's membership of the European Union. And remarkably, this time, both Kosovo's president and the American mediators accepted it reflecting three key changes uh, since the previous decade. The first was a willingness by Kosovo's president to compromise after a decade of debilitating legal limbo. And if that meant surrendering the Serb-dominated enclave in Kosovo's north, which Pristina didn't control anyway, then that was a price worth paying. The second change was the arrival of the Trump administration with its America First policy and indifference to liberal precepts such as promoting multi-ethnicity. And the third was the immediate threat from Russia which overshadowed the longer term and more abstract threat of instability deriving from a change in borders. The result was a secret agreement on partition and an end to the cornerstone of American security strategy in the Balkans for the previous 25 years, namely 
that the borders of the region cannot deviate from those in the old Yugoslavia. Unfortunately for Washington and the two presidents, the deal collapsed on contact with the outside world. For one thing, it caused serious apprehension in many European countries, including Germany and the United Kingdom, which feared for the stability of Bosnia and North Macedonia. But more importantly, the deal also generated a furious backlash in Kosovo, whose people had understood that Kosovo's independence within its existing borders was an established fact. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, many felt betrayed by the United States, their longtime external sponsor, whose message to the Albanians was that Kosovo's full independence was actually conditional on the blessing of their old adversary, Serbia. And Kosovo's response to this was twofold. Firstly, the Prime Minister attempted to pressurise Kosovo into recognising Kosovo, sorry, pressurise Serbia into recognising Kosovo by imposing 100% tariffs on all Serbian imports and asserting its authority in the northern enclave, leading Serbia to deploy its army to Kosovo's border earlier this year. And second, the president, realising that Kosovo couldn't end its state of legal limbo via a compromise with Serbia, called for Kosovo's unification with the recognised state of Albania. And that struck a chord in Tirana, where the failure of Albania's bid to join the European Union left the leadership amenable to the alternative goal of Albanian national unification. So we're now going to peer into the future for a moment. Uh, and I will concede that where events go from here is a matter of speculation. But there are four basic scenarios. The first is that Serbia and Kosovo do a deal, driven by their interest in resolving Kosovo's status, backed by heavy diplomatic pressure from <coughs> Washington. But given Serbia's bottom line, that inevitably means a deal based on the idea of partition for recognition. But it must be said, the odds uh, of achieving this are slim. The Albanians remain intractably opposed to partition and last week uh, elected a new government which refuses even to talk to Belgrade. While at the international level, Germany is now working with France to block partition and Moscow has voiced its opposition to any deal that reduces Serbia's dependence on Russia. So that augurs a second scenario in which the idea of partition is again taken off the table, followed either by Serbia's agreement to recognize Kosovo unconditionally, or a decision simply to freeze the dispute pending more fortuitous circumstances in the future. But again, there is a difficulty. 
uh, with removing the idea of partition, namely that Serbia will not recognize Kosovo without some form of compensation, and this can no longer realistically be membership of the European Union as someone's hoped. And similarly, there's little prospect of freezing the Kosovo dispute because geopolitical imperatives mean the issue will not stand still. The Americans are determined to resolve Kosovo's status, to neutralize Russia's influence in Serbia, and the Albanians are desperate to end Kosovo's state of legal limbo. But that has clear implications, because if Serbia refuses to recognize Kosovo's independence, except on terms which are unacceptable to the Albanians, that inevitably implies unification with the recognized state of Albania, which is a radical option, but one which most Kosovo Albanians would probably accept. Now that leads to a third scenario, namely some kind of regional shakeup as Serbia responds to moves towards uh, Albanian unification. There's no way that Serbia could passively accept the integration of Kosovo's northern enclave into an Albanian national state and would undoubtedly respond to any such threat by annexing the enclave, leading to a military standoff with the Albanians, the probable expulsion uh, of the remaining Serbs from southern Kosovo, an attempted break by the Albanians in Serbia's Preševo Valley and a crisis of statehood in Serbia itself, which would bring hardline national fo nationalist forces to power. And that in turn would create a generational opportunity for the Serbs of Bosnia to break away and offer their territory to Serbia as compensation for the loss of Kosovo. And in time, a united Albanian would also create a new geopolitical option for the Albanians of North Macedonia who try to attach their territory to this new Albanian national state. It remains an open question how violent this process would be, but history suggests it would not be peaceful. And this in turn would precipitate the next reordering of the region as outsiders led by the United States, which has already asserted its leading role in the Balkans, were forced to manage the consequences of the processes it had begun as outsiders have done repeatedly in the past. What the settlement for the region would look like remains to be seen, but if precedent is any guide, it would be another compromise between the local people's desire to form nation-states and the core security interests of the great powers. Given its desire to resolve the Kosovo dispute, I think the United States would probably not resist Kosovo's unification with Albania and the Preševo Valley or Serbia's annexation of northern Kosovo if these became established facts on the ground. And the Europeans would probably be quietly, quietly relieved that the Serbs and the Albanians had finally found a solution to the tiresome 
Kosovo problem, while Russia would probably try and turn developments to its own advantage. But the United States would be very wary of changes to borders elsewhere in the Balkans. It would almost certainly resist an attempt by the Bosnian Serbs to unite their territory with Serbia, which could create uh, a long frontier between Serbia and its regional adversary, Croatia, and create a powerful platform for Russian influence in the Balkans. And the US would also resist moves by the Albanians to break away from North Macedonia because they don't yet have a defined territory. Meaning that uh, in the absence of an administrative border which could be upgraded to an international border, any attempt at secession would be complex and probably bloody. So instead, I think the United States would insist that these people and the Bosnian Croats stayed put, but it would try to meet their desire for self-determination with a new settlement in both Bosnia and North Macedonia that gave these peoples virtual independence within an outwardly unified state. And to sweeten the deal, it would probably also encourage local governments to effectively dissolve the borders, separating national groups by dismantling passport controls, promoting cross-border cooperation and supporting dual citizenship. That would define the next phase in the Balkans' history in which Serbs and Albanians moved closer to their goal of establishing nation-states and the great powers advanced their goal of stabilizing the Balkans while keeping each other at bay. But it would leave many issues unresolved, including the final status of the Serbs of Bosnia and the Albanians of North Macedonia who would want to coalesce with their expanded national states. And that in turn would raise questions about the status of the Bosniak and Croat parts of Bosnia and the weak Slavic core of North Macedonia, which is coveted by Bulgaria. Questions would also remain about the numerous minority populations in Montenegro and the relationship between these reconfigured states and the great powers which surround them. Since the United States would have to guarantee its new settlement in the region, Russia would be compelled to try and contain American influence by entrenching its influence over the Bosnian Serbs. And the Bosniaks of Bosnia would continue to look to Turkey and the Islamic world to defend the long-term integrity of Bosnia itself. So we reach our conclusion. If the Balkans appears to be on the cusp of another reordering that replaces the post-Yugoslav settlement, then none of this is pre-planned. Rather, it's the unintended consequence of the Europeans' failure to suppress nationalism with the alternative goal of European integration 
and the Americans' decision to fight the new Cold War in the Balkans as it tries to force a resolution of the Kosovo dispute, Washington is discovering that it can't simultaneously neutralize the influence of Russia in Serbia and insist on the territorial integrity of the, reason, uh, of the region for the reason that Serbia has made fulfillment of the first conditional on Washington abandoning the second. Now, this has panicked the Kosovo Albanians who have launched a challenge to the regional status quo by pushing Kosovo's unification with Albania, the consequence of which will rebound on Serbia and require the United States to reorder the region to contain any potential outbreak of violence. And a final word. As has always been the case, this next reordering will create new pressures which eventually reach a breaking point. And as the cycle of history rolls on in the Balkans, the partial solution to the problems of today will inevitably create the problems of tomorrow and the subsequent reordering of the region that must, in a generation from now, inexorably follow. Okay, I'll finish there. It looks like we have about 10 minutes left, so uh, I'm happy to take comments or questions if anyone has any. Thank you so much. Please let's open to the room and have questions. Yes. Is it religious um, tension or economic or economics that makes the film very um, vulnerable, very interchangeable? Which is the biggest question? Well, Religion plays a part in this because uh, it's what defines identity in the region. You have groups like the Serbs, the Croats, and the Bosniaks. The culture is the same, the language is the same, but what distinguishes them is Islam, Catholicism, and Orthodoxy. But don't run away with the idea that they are having heated debates about transubstantiation or... <laughs> uh, their religion defines their identity, which defines their national loyalty. And it's their national loyalty which pits them against each other. Now, economics also comes into it, because when the people are prosperous and happy, and they're working nine to five, they're not thinking about killing each other. But the economy is extremely weak in most parts of the Balkans, particularly Bosnia. And this frees people up to think about why their lives are miserable and uh, very often they end up directing blame for their economic misery on some other group in the region. I hope that answers your question. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, gentlemen. That's a big question. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't fundamentally contest the idea because if you 
you know, as a thought experiment, if you took the view that borders couldn't be contested, you would instantly have a thousand separatist conflicts breaking out around the world. I think it is perfectly valid um, that diplomats try to contain separatism by effectively banning it uh, and looking for solutions um, to, to problems of national self-determination short of actually breaking up states. But there is a caveat, which is that I think sometimes um, situations can reach a point where the prohibition on changing borders can actually create more problems than it solves. And I certainly think um, you could argue that some parts of the Balkans already fall into that category. I mean, I, I spent two and a half years as a diplomat in Bosnia, which is a state that's in agony um, because all politics is about uh, the nature of the state. I, I mean, if, if you want to try and imagine what it's like, think about the last three years of the Brexit debate and the, and the worst moments in that, and then imagine that that's been running for 25 years, and that's the political reality in Bosnia. Everything else is stagnant, neglected, because the debate about the nature of the state, whether it's a centralized state, whether it breaks up, is just completely dominates political discussion. And I must admit, I left Bosnia thinking it would just be easier to put this out, this state out of its misery uh, if the if the Serbs and the Croats really, really do want to, to, to leave and they've made up their minds and this is never going to get better than it is right now, then it's probably incumbent on outsiders to find, you know, negotiate some form of secession, you know, which, which gives the Bosniak something but allows the Serbs and the Croats to move on. Anyone else? Yes. Well, uh, yeah, the risk is the locals would end up killing each other, <laughs> in a nutshell. So, uh, uh, but I, I don't make that point flippantly. Um, there have been moments in the past, uh, for example, in the early 1990s, um, also at the, in the early 20th century after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, when a power vacuum has emerged in the region. No external powers were involved, and the locals were free to shape their own politics. And what we've seen is that every time they were freed by the external powers to push their goal of forming nation states, they have done so, and they've done so in a traditional Balkan way, uh, fighting for what they want. So. I certainly, on the one hand, I think if we left them to it, they would solve their problems. But we would be turning a blind eye to carnage. And I think in good conscience, there's a limit to how long we could tolerate carnage. We did it for three years in the early 90s, and we watched 100,000 people die in Bosnia before finally the United States intervened and ended it uh, and imposed a settlement which at least ended the war. But had all sorts of other problems attached to it. 
I mean, my inclination is to think that there is a real problem. We shouldn't deny there's a problem. The locals um, seek nation statehood, and we shouldn't resist that. But outsiders can definitely play a role in uh, helping them to reach that goal in a diplomatic manner rather than through the use of violence, which is certainly the risk. Yes, at the back. Yeah. Well, um, I don't think the reason Yugoslavia held was specifically because of communism. Uh, although um, it was a relatively successful communist system, quite different to communism elsewhere in Eastern Europe, and, and enjoyed relatively widespread legitimacy among the local people. What held Yugoslavia together was the Cold War and strategic rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union, um, who treated Yugoslavia as a, as a buffer separating NATO and the Warsaw Pact. And effectively, this served to encage the Western Balkans uh, that had absolutely no room for maneuver. There's no way that either Moscow or Washington would allow any kind of um, uh, internal disintegration of the region because it would potentially concede an advantage to their opponent. And so there was just an implicit understanding that Yugoslavia shall be preserved. Um, and this was just beyond debate, to beyond dispute. And I think the, the other dimension to it is um, the communists were certainly quite heavy-handed. Tito uh, certainly clamped down very hard on any suggestion um, that any constituent part of Yugoslavia might break away. Um, you know, it just wasn't a, it wasn't a talking point. And to the extent that he sensed that there were nationalist pressures, he very skillfully managed them, at one point perhaps giving some advantage to the Serbs. But if they got too powerful, he would give an advantage to the Croats and, and so on in a sort of careful balancing act that went on for, for decades, in fact. Um, and it's no coincidence that Yugoslavia collapsed when Tito died with a delay of 10 years, but more specifically when the Cold War ended and the United States and the Soviet Union uh, released their pressure on this country and then uh, it disintegrated from within. Lady Death. Yeah, but it's a very plausible scenario. If it's just absolutely terrifying, 
Well, it depends what you mean. So I slightly reject these terms, greater Albania, greater Serbia, greater Croatia, and so on, because it, it, it implies um, that Albania, for example, wants to annex all the territory where Albanians live and all the, all the minorities that might be captured within that territory, whereas I think the project these days is to establish a nation state in which almost everyone who comprises a national group is part of the state, but you, you forget about the small pockets of minorities that may be left outside of it. Yeah, it, it is possible, um, but it makes various assumptions about the future uh, that there are good things to talk about, like the state of the economy or progress with joining the European Union. Uh, but I think in the absence of those, um, leaders who value their survival will talk about nation building. Um, and for reasons, I think, which rather baffle Western commentators. Um, if you look at the election results, the nationalists always win. It's, it's a <laughs> going into the elections, then all leaders will always ratchet up the talk about greater this and greater that, uh, because it seems to be a vote winner. Uh, and for as long as that remains the case, if there's nothing else good to talk about, they'll talk about nationalism, because apparently that is what voters respond to. I hear your thoughts, but I, I'm not quite as optimistic as you. <laughs> yes. Well, I think that is the way the debate is going at the moment. Um, you may have heard the news this week that the European Council again rejected the request of Albania and North Macedonia for open negotiations on EU membership. And I draw the conclusion from that, it's over. They're not gonna join the EU. In fact, none of them are gonna join the EU. But the problems of instability in the Balkans remain and it's incumbent on Western policymakers to try to find some alternative way to stabilize the region uh, which doesn't involve European integration. And certainly ideas about economic integration, regional integration, interconnectivity as they call it, um, and perhaps draw, well, uh, increasing investment into the region, but they're very wary about China getting too deeply involved in this.
it's probably going to work the other way. I, I mean, generally, the assumption in Western capitals is that China is bad news in the Balkans because it offers uh, no strings investment uh, and therefore provides uh, an attractive alternative to the kind of investment which comes from the European Union with strings attached to it, namely economic reform, democratic reform, improvement of human rights, and so on. And if, uh, if the locals can get their infrastructure built by the Chinese without having to bother with democracy and human rights, very hard work, takes a long time, politicians have to make personal sacrifices for this, they'll go with the Chinese. And for that reason, the Europeans and the Americans are very nervous about the role of China. Very difficult to stop, though. I think that's it, isn't it? Yeah, well, thank you very much for your questions.